Welcome to Counter Melody, the podcast on great singers and great singing. I am your host, Daniel Gundlach, and I am thrilled to share with you the opera and classical singers about whom I am most passionate. I hope that when you hear these voices, you might echo me in saying, God, I love her, or God, I love him. Now, Without any further ado, I bring you this week's episode. Hi everyone, and welcome to the next episode of Counter Melody. The voice that you just heard was today's subject, Gloria Davy, yet another distinguished African-American singer whose career we will be discussing and celebrating today. She's singing about a journey here, and we in the opera world have observed many people on journeys this past week. Two very important Italian artists took their leave of us this last week. At the beginning of last week, Nello Santi, the important Italian conductor, died. And then on Sunday, we lost the beloved Italian soprano Mirella Freni at the age of 84. I will be devoting time to Freni on an episode in the month of March, but I did want to acknowledge her for her extraordinary career and contribution to the world of opera.
<laughs> it's so typical for me, but I hear that and I just break into tears. I don't think it's been more beautifully sung since the days of Edith Mason, and that's really saying something. Wow. She may not have been the greatest uh, interpreter, but I think that's the most beautiful high D flat I've ever heard in my life. Another singer who certainly rivals Franey in sheer beauty of particularly her upper register celebrated a different kind of journey this past week, and that is Leontine Price, who celebrated what I think they're saying is her 93rd journey around the sun. certainly going to encounter Leontine Price vis-a-vis -vis Gloria Davy in this episode. Makes for an interesting comparison and contrasting because in some ways they appear similar and in other ways really I would propose that they had very, very different uh, careers. Gloria Davy, where to begin? Why don't we start at the beginning? She was born in Brooklyn, and she was the daughter of immigrants from the island of St. Vincent. She was born March 29th, 1931. That means that next year, were she still alive, she would be 90 years old. She went to the High School of Music and Art in New York City, graduated there in 1951, and then entered the Juilliard School. There she received her degree in 1953. Her teacher was Belle Julie Soudant, who also taught Frances Bible, among others. For those of you who don't know Frances Bible, she was a very important mezzo-soprano who sang at City Opera, among other places. She also sang Octavia at Glyndebourne under Raymond Lepard, and she sang the role of Augusta Tabor in the world premiere recording of The Ballad of Baby Doe by Douglas Moore and John Latouche, a recording which, of course, also featured Beverly Sills in the title role. But let's get back to Ms. Davy, shall we? Gloria Davy then did a post-doc at Juilliard, and while she was doing that, she appeared in the U.S. premiere of Richard Strauss's opera Capriccio, which, amazingly, when you think about it, had just premiered only 12 years before that. And at that point, Strauss had only been dead for five years. Kind of helps you put this in perspective, doesn't it? <laughs> Gloria Davy was also one of four African-American singers to participate in the premiere performance and first recording of Paul Bowles and James Schuyler's A Picnic Cantata. 
The piece was the brainchild of Gold and Fitzdale, the duo pianists who were also a romantic duo, a sort of on-again, off-again romantic duo, evidently. Arthur Gold and Robert Fitzdale were neighbors of the composer Paul Bowles, and they commissioned him and James Schuyler both to write this absolutely charming piece. Knock, knock. selected four recent Juilliard grads to participate in the premiere. The four singers were Martha Flowers, Gloria Davy, Marita Gaither, and Gloria Winder. Without a doubt, it was Gloria Davy who went on to the greatest fame. I don't know about the mezzo or the contralto, but Martha Flowers I have recently discovered, and she was a hell of an artist, and I hope to present her to you sometime in the very near future as well. All four of the women are always singing in various combinations or just a solo line here or there. Except there's an extended section which the mezzo-soprano sings where she's reading something from the newspaper. found on the New York Festival of Songs blog a really interesting description of this piece. I'm going to put a link to the NIFOS blog piece about this. It tells you a little bit more about the provenance of the piece, the subversive elements, the queer elements. It's pretty fascinating. It's worth checking out the complete recording as well, which is about a half hour long. Another thing that happened in her early years is that she won a competition, and the award for the competition was a live performance of Benjamin Britten's Les Illuminations, the cycle that he wrote for the Swiss soprano Sophie Wies. 
It's gone on to be sung by tenors as well. And what we have from 1957 is a recording from Radio Italiana of her singing this very same cycle with Sergio Zelbidake, the enigmatic and rather brilliant Romanian conductor. Here is the short and brilliant movement entitled Marine from that same cycle. Davy made her professional debut in a revival of Four Saints in Three Acts, which we discussed last week as well. The Four Saints in Three Acts was her Broadway debut. Later that year, she returned to Broadway to portray a role in a piece called My Darlin' Aida, which my teacher John Wussman told me he played rehearsals for, and which was cut out of the same cloth, if you will, as Carmen Jones. It was an attempt to use the themes of Verdi's Aida to new words, but to set it in, I think it was sort of a hillbilly context. Boy, it sounds like it couldn't miss, but evidently it wasn't a big hit. Surprise, surprise. I just have to add a little sidelight that Dodie Goodman, who went on to portray Louise Lasser's mother in the Norman Lear adult soap opera, Mary Hartman! Mary Hartman! was also in the cast of my darling Aida. Good gracious. Now, not to whet your appetite for something that I'm not going to be able to provide you on the podcast, but I just accidentally stumbled upon a cache of amazing recorded documents of Gloria Davy while she was a student at Juilliard. These clips include two performances of her doing Act Two of Merja Figaro in English, so we get to hear her singing Por Jamor, or whatever the name is. Is in the Ruth and Thomas Martin translation. Furthermore, there are recordings of two different performances of her singing the Capriccio Countess that I had mentioned earlier. Both of them are really marvelous. This is a role that I think she would have done 
to perfection on the world's international stages. On other recordings, we get to hear her sing Vado Madove, the concert aria of Mozart, and she proves herself to be a magnificent Mozartian. In fact, I'm going to jump in right here and offer you a clip from her Pamina, which she sang a few years later at the Met. The other singers we hear in this excerpt are Nicolai Gedda as Tamino and Giorgio Tozzi as Zarastro. It's Erich Leinsdorf conducting. Davy also appeared with the Met on tour in Israel singing Fior di Ligi, another role that I think would have suited her absolutely down to the ground. The Pamina was Gloria Davies' only Met broadcast performance, about 10 months 
after her debut, which we will discuss in a few minutes. To my ear, I hear how beautifully suited she is to this repertoire, and that is going to raise an interesting question later on in this episode. I just want to return for a moment to that cache of Juilliard recordings that I had described earlier. I'm a little nervous about well, first of all, I couldn't figure out how to get the embedded MP3s ripped so I could include them on the podcast. And the other thing is that there may be legal issues surrounding my dissemination of those recordings. But on the show notes page, I'm going to put a link and you can go and listen to all of those really remarkable recordings. The other thing that's really great about this is that you can hear Gloria Davy represented in a wider range of repertory than you hear on her commercial recordings. So I really recommend going to listen to those things, especially because it was repertoire for which she was particularly well-suited. And she's in her very early 20s and singing extremely beautifully. One of the works captured in that series of Juilliard recordings is Poulenc's Calligramme, and it's interesting to note that she sings these songs only five years after they were actually written. She may not bring the complete expertise that someone like Suzé or Bernac brings to these songs, but for such a young singer, 22 years old, she really has a great deal of insight. She would go on to sing more Poulenc, First of all, on a 1957 song recital that she recorded for London Records, on which she sings the Fiancailles pour rire, in addition to songs by Purcell and Brahms, as well as the Turina Poema in Forma de Canciones. I've not been able to get my hands on this recording because it's super rare and multo expensivo. I hope at some point to be able to bring them to you now. Just a couple weeks ago, we heard Jenny Turrell sing them in what I consider to be a near-definitive performance. I'm sure that Gloria Davy in her recording probably doesn't bring that same sense of world-weariness and insight that Turrell does. But I do have an excerpt from that recording that I'd like to share with you. Actually, it's of two different songs. First is Purcell's Man is for the Woman Made, of course, the text is just a bunch of heteronormative claptrap, if you ask me. But it's wonderful to hear her moving her voice with such facility throughout the range. The pianist here is Giorgio Favaretto. And now we will hear her sing a Brahms lead 
Auf dem Kirchhofe, which is a song about a visit to a cemetery. The poem is really trashy, but Brahms had a knack for setting bad, bad, bad poetry and putting it in the most exquisite setting imaginable. That's my opinion of many of Brahms' songs. It doesn't bother me. I love Brahms so much. And let's just listen to her do that song, Auf dem Kirchhofe. Perhaps an important question to ask here is how Gloria Davy went so quickly from being a postdoc student at Juilliard to recording just a couple short years later for London Records. Well, I think we need to look at the events of 1954 for an answer to that. That was the year in which Gloria Davy replaced Leontine Price in the International Porgy and Bess Tour that had been put together by the State Department. I read recently that Gloria Davy appeared in 1969 in a recording of excerpts from Porgy. I have been unable to find any record of that. It would be fascinating to hear her sing this part. But lacking that, we will discuss where she went from there, and another role that she shared with Leontine Price. 
When the Porgy tour reached La Scala in 1955, Davy met the very important conductor Victor de Sabata. Those who love opera and those who love Maria Callas will, of course, remember that de Sabata conducted Callas in two very significant things. First of all, were her soul on stage appearances as Lady Macbeth, and the second was her first recording of Tosca, the classic recording from La Scala with Giuseppe Di Stefano and Tito Gobbi. When Gloria Davy met De Sabata, he was very taken with her talent and immediately suggested a role for her, which went on to become her most famous assumption but which I find to be really the most problematic role of her career. We're speaking, of course, of the title role of Verdi's Aida. He offered her the role at La Scala. Evidently, there was a good deal of political upheaval at the time, so she ended up making her debut as Aida instead in Nice. And following that, she appeared at a stadium concert with the New York Philharmonic, also in a concert performance of Aida, and made her debuts in Bologna and Zagreb, also singing Aida. Even more significantly, Aida was the role of her Metropolitan Opera debut in February 1958. She was only the fourth African-American artist to appear at the Met, following, of course, Marian Anderson, Robert McFerrin, who we will discuss next week, and Matawilda Dobbs, the beautiful coloratura soprano, who also ended up emigrating to Europe. I must tell you the truth here and say that I find Gloria Davy to be merely a serviceable Aida. The first time I ever heard her voice was, in fact, an excerpt from that Deutsche Grammophon recording of Aida excerpts in German with Chandra Konya. It was the Act Three duet, and mm, I didn't like it. The voice seemed really edgy. It seemed pressed to the very edges of its capabilities. It didn't have that plushness. It didn't have that ability to soar. I just don't think she had the right voice. I think of her more actually as almost a falcon. There was not an ease on the top, but there was an incredibly rich low voice. So in other words, her voice is the polar opposite of Leontine Price's, whose lower and middle ranges were the weakest part of her voice, but under whose care Aida soars to the heights. I almost think it's unfair to present an excerpt of her Aida, but what I'm going to do, I'll just play a little bit of one excerpt, and then we will go on to discuss roles in which I think she was really magnificent, and what happened in her later career. So, all that said, here's the Aida snippet. You judge for yourselves.
That was the live recording from the Deutsche Oper Berlin with Karl Böhm conducting and Jess Thomas as her Radames. I used that one not because the sound is so great, you have to forgive there's a little dropout and, um, you know, but she does manage a beautiful high B-flat at the end, pianissimo, with a diminuendo. That's very admirable, and it's better than on the studio recording, in fact. And clearly, she's so deeply musical. There are so many virtues to her performance. But it's not her role. And this is the central point. Why did Gloria Davy have to sing so many Aidas? Not because it suited her playing. I went off on a major tear after that point, and I'm going to spare you my tirade. But I think you get the point of what I'm trying to convey. I honestly believe that Gloria Davy was not well served by having to sing so many Aidas. And I think that the inherent racism in the world of opera, not just in that time, but particularly in that time, played a huge part in her getting pigeonholed into singing so many performances of that role. I mean, we can't all be Leontine, we can't all be Martina Arroyo, and in fact, Shirley Verrett as well was an exceptionally good Aida. Gloria Davy, less so. Which is not to say that she was not a great artist. What I'm going to offer is a selection of some of her other recordings and roles in which I think she excels. Now, here's an interesting thing. One of her roles at the Met was actually Nedda in Pagliacci. Well, of course, Pagliacci is usually paired with Cavalleria Rusticana. So which role did she do on the excerpts for Deutsche Grammophon? It's actually Santuzza rather than Nedda. But I think she's very well suited to Santuzza because it doesn't lie as high. She doesn't have to hammer right in her passaggio the way she did in the Verdi. I think it's a much better fit for her. So let's just listen to a little bit. This time we're going to hear her with Chandra Konya doing some of the duet from the center part of the opera.
there was a Verdi role in Gloria Davies' repertoire, in which I think she truly excelled, and that is Leonora Introtore. There were still some problems. The fourth act aria is not her high point, but I'm going to play you from the very end of the opera, where Leonora has already taken the poison, and she's dying, and she says to Manrico, I didn't want to live for another person, in other words, the Count de Luna, who's forcing her to give herself to him, <laughs> and all that entails, in order to save Manrico's life. So she'd rather die than give herself to Di Luna. Maybe she's not thinking ahead, because maybe he would have actually saved Manrico's life, and then they could have gone off together. But no, she's been sullied, so you know how all of that operatic nonsense goes. And, of course, Trovatore is the most ridiculous plot in all of opera, and that's saying something. Anyway, let's listen to a little bit of her dying moments from the studio recording of excerpts in German on Deutsche Grammophon. Now here is a real obscure one for you. This is César Franck's Rebecca. This is a half hour long biblical scene with dramatic content, but it's not a dramatic piece. It depicts a specific story in the Bible in which Abraham's servant, Eliezer, comes to clinch the deal of Rebekah's becoming betrothed to his son Isaac. She demonstrates her kindness by offering water to his camels and is therefore rewarded with a great big bunch of jewels. This is a scene that is depicted in this cantata. Who knew but that this was a popular subject for paintings? I found three nice ones that I put up on the show notes page. Go there, countermelodypodcast.com, and take a look. Here in this 1959 performance from, again, Italian radio, we hear Gloria Davy as Rebecca and the wonderful, if somewhat flawed, baritone Pierre Mollet, whose name you may recognize from Ernest Ansermet's first recording of Peleas, in which he sang the title role opposite Suzanne Dancourt as the servant Eliezer. 
Yes, this is a very obscure excerpt, but what I want you to hear is how well suited Gloria Davy was to the French repertoire. I don't think it occupied a significant part in her career, unfortunately, because I can think of so many Falcon roles that I think she would have been excellent in. Charlotte in Verterre, for instance, I think she would have been magnificent in that part. I don't know if you are all as fond of this ridiculously overblown French religiosity-laden music as I am. I don't know why I like it. I'm saving this operatic excerpt for last because it's kind of the best. So in 1957, Gloria Davy appeared with the American Opera Society, which presented many wonderful performances during that period, in a concert performance of Anna Bolena at Town Hall. This performance was conducted by Arnold Gamson, and the cast included Richard Cassily and Giulietta Simeonato as Giovanna Seymour. Gloria Davy was in quite distinguished company, and she more than held her own, as one can hear in the recording. Of course, in the final scene, she's all on her own. It's her show. I'm going to play the final cabaletta, the coppia iniqua, right before Anna goes off to have her head chopped off. 
you can hear her mastery of the coloratura and of the dramatic phrase. It's beautifully, beautifully done, and she had an enormous success with it. I'm not sure she went on to do too much more bel canto repertoire, which is a real pity, because again, I think that the flexibility that she shows, her magisterial quality, as well as her vocal weight, would have served her beautifully in these very difficult-to-cast bel canto roles many of which do not demand that you have a high E-flat. Witness Montserrat Caballé, my friends. happened to Gloria Davy in the late 60s. I read in one source that she had a car accident and that this terminated her stage career. I have found no corroboration of this anywhere else, including any of the obituaries that were published at the time of her death in 2012, or any of the biographical data I found anywhere, so I don't know if that's true. But she did eventually cut back on her operatic appearances and began to do almost exclusively from what I can determine, contemporary music. With all of her virtues, she was a shoe-in, actually, for this kind of repertoire. As early as 1957, she had sung in the premiere of Hans Werner Henze's Nacht, Stücke und Arien. So she was already doing 
quite avant-garde music even back then. As her voice changed somewhat, her repertoire changed as well. And we're going to hear excerpts from two of the more significant pieces that she did. One is an excerpt from Shulamit Ran's cycle, Oh the Chimneys, that is written for soprano and a modified piero ensemble. I don't believe there's a violin here, but all the other usual suspects are in place. Piano, clarinet slash bass clarinet, cello, and the addition of percussion. It's rather remarkable that a 19-year-old wrote this piece. It's based on the poems of Nelly Zachs, and it's specifically referring to the chimneys of the concentration camps. I'm going to read just the note that the conductor of this performance, A. Robert Johnson, wrote on the back of this recording. Whether or not we know it or care to admit it, we who live are survivors or descendants of people who have survived what is surely the worst horror contrived by people for others of their kind calculated extermination. For those who find it difficult to accept the truth about the nearness to all of us of such preemptive finality, to warn us there is fortunately the creative force of a few who at some point in their heritage have been nearer the flame than others, or perhaps even in it. I'm offering the third song for you, and I'm going to read the English translation by Michael Hamburger, Ruth and Matthew Mead, and Michael Roloff that was published in 1967. Fleeing, what a great reception on the way, wrapped in the wind's shawl, feet in the prayer of sand, which can never say amen, compelled from fin to wing and further. The sick butterfly will soon learn again of the sea. This stone with a fly's inscription gave itself into my hand. I hold, instead of a homeland, the metamorphoses of the world.
Probably the highest profile contemporary piece that Gloria Davy performed was Karl-Heinz Stockhausen's revision of his piece called Momente. too complicated to go into the structure of this piece, anything about it. I'm going to put up a link on the show notes page for anyone who has the slightest bit of curiosity about Stockhausen. It's a very complex piece. I've strung together several different snippets so that you can hear the different kind of vocal techniques that Gloria Davy makes use of in this piece. It's difficult listening, but... There's something about the sound world that's very compelling, at least to my ear.
From the time of her marriage to the Swiss stockbroker Hermann Penningsfield in 1959, Gloria Davy spent the majority of her career and life in Europe. She did, however, teach at Indiana University from 1984 through 1987, but she continued to make her permanent home in Geneva, where she had lived for years. She died there on November 28, 2012, a time when we lost a significant number of really great, iconic singers. Galina Vishnevskaya, Lisa de la Casa, primary among them. To wind up this episode, I'm going to take us back to that initial spiritual that we heard at the beginning. That is from a 1956 Decca 10-inch LP called Spirituals. What I really love about this recording are the arrangements. They are by Julia Perry, who is a lesser-known African-American composer. She also wrote a Stabat Mater that's very beautiful. The recording that I found has a less-than-adequate singer. She wrote a number of significant orchestral things. These arrangements very unlike any others that I've heard. They perfectly frame the youthful and fascinating voice of Gloria Davy. I'm just gonna play them one after the other. We're gonna have five in a row. Let us break bread together. 
Sister Mary had but one child. That's one that was made famous by both Roland Hayes and Charles Holland. One called Hold the Wind, followed by Eagle's Wings, and You Must Have That True Religion. Many of these are not the most familiar spirituals one generally encounters in the last set of a recital program. I salute these two women, Gloria Davy and Julia Perry, for making such a significant contribution in this recording of spirituals.
to Jerusalem came, they'd traveled very far. They said, where is he born, king of the Jews? For we have seen his His face was grim. He said, Tell me where the child may be found. I'll go and worship him. I'll go and worship him. Sister Mary.
must have that true religion. You must have your soul converted. You must have that true religion. You can't cross there. You must have that true religion. You must have your soul converted. You must have that true religion. You can't cross there. We believe, sinner. We believe, I say. Going down to the river of Jordan to be on a pray. You must have that true religion. You must have your soul converted. You must have that true religion. You can't cross there. We believe. Thank you for joining me for this episode. I realize I brought up some controversial viewpoints, perhaps, about racism and how it affects the artistic lives of minority singers and artists. I certainly hope that we're learning to promote a little bit more tolerance somehow, even in this divided world in which we live right now. ourselves together. And what better way to do that than through music and singing? I myself am not a minority, at least I don't appear to be, of course. I'm a big homo. That has certainly affected my career in some ways, and it's made me very conscious of the kinds of prejudice that all minorities face, not only in the music business, but in the world at large. I really think we're given a wonderful gift by being able to perform, to share. It's certainly been a driving force in my life, a compelling reason for me to continue to face the world every day. Next week, we'll be talking about two baritones, one who stayed home (laughs) and one who fled to Europe. Those singers are Robert McFerrin and Lawrence Winters. To me, they are two of the most beautiful baritone voices of the past century, so it will be my enormous joy and privilege to bring them to you. As always, I thank Alan Segal for his beautiful underscoring. And Steve Robinson for his tutelage and guidance in production of this podcast. Until next time, my friends, keep this song in your hearts. I'm Daniel Kontlach. <laughs>